I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. I am super, super excited about my guest today because of my own background in a similar field, working in fair trade. So it's my pleasure to welcome Rupa Mehta. She leads the Sasha Association for Craft Producers in India and is the president of the World Fair Trade Organization. So the WFTO is a, an organization that has 412 members around the world spread in 76 countries. They support and trade with each other, speak up collectively, meet regularly, and collaborate at trade fairs. It's a movement, a community, and an idea. And if you're not familiar with fair trade, we're going to talk a lot about it, so you can't escape figuring out what it's about. But the clue is kind of in the name. It's about ensuring that the people who produce the the products that we buy every day are actually paid a fair wage, whether that's garment workers, whether that's farmers, or anybody else in the supply chain, because quite often they are not paid fairly. So the WFTO members impact a million livelihoods. 74% of those are women. And these enterprises transform local communities, pioneer upcycling, empower women, champion refugee rights, and practice organic farming. And their impact goes far and wide. And if you know anything about sustainable development, you know that the way to change the world is to empower women, to educate them, to pay them properly for their work, and to actually recognize their equality in the world by paying them for it. So back to Rupa. The Sasha Association for Craft Producers is an exemplary WFTO member selling fashion and home products around the world. Her association with Fairtrade began in 1978, back in the early days, and she moved over full-time to Sasha in 1985. She served on the board of Fairtrade Forum India and the Asia WFTO board, and then She was voted onto the FTO Global Board as an independent board member in May 2011. She was elected president in 2019. So Rupa completed an economic honors course, followed by an MBA from Delhi University. She started her career in business, working in the private sector, working with a leading Indian chain of hotels. So a bit of a switch of sectors there. She eventually became executive director of a company producing and retailing high-end women's clothing, using traditional dyeing, printing, and embroidery techniques. So we are going to weave through her history and talk about fair trade and women and being a female leader in this world and a female in the world of business. But I cannot wait to have this chat. Welcome, Rupa. Thank you so much, Betsy. I've been looking forward to our chat. And thank you for that very good introduction. Well, you you will know from my history that fair trade is one of my passions because one of my earliest roles was as director of the Scottish Fair Trade Forum, so the umbrella body in Scotland, and I got to set it up and run this amazing national campaign and movement, but also then bring over tea farmers and craft producers and, and really beautiful souls from places like Malawi and Kenya and Palestine and just introduce them to people with their stories of 
who they are in the world and what they do and the products that the people are holding in their hands, you know, how they've played a role in that. So I'm really excited to bring this story to more people of what the impact of our choices as consumers and citizens has on other people we may never know about. So um, yeah, I've been looking forward to this chat for quite some time. So I, as you probably already know, always ask the same first question to everyone, which is, what is an uncomfortable moment that has shaped who you are and who you are in the world that's changed your life? There have been so many, Betsy, but I think real turning points, if you ask me, was um, I my first job as as you said, was um, in the hotel industry. And this is one of the leading hotels after I had my MBA degree. And I was doing the, you know, the management training, going to all the departments. And and one day I just sat down and I said, what am I doing here? And then there was an opportunity for me to move on and set up two retail stores, uh, which was retailing high-end women's wear, but all with uh, handmade. So it was handmade, uh, it was embroideries and block printing and fabricating. So it was a very, very successful business. And uh, it was well, sort of a family business, my husband's family. And I loved it because that was my journey of discovering the craft skills my journey of associations with artisans and their value. And I just remember a conversation I was was having with the owner. We had a wonderful friendship and, you know, I was learning a lot and I was contributing a lot to the business as an executive director. And she said something about, you know, but we do it all for business. And the thought that came to my mind was for whose business? Hmm. You know, it's for your business. It's for making you wealthier. And of course, the artisans were well cared for. But what was their agency, really? How were they participating in that whole business? They were workers, yes, workers. But even with workers, you know, and that's the difference between even a well-intended business model, which is, of course, fine, I see nothing wrong with it, but a well-intended traditional business model, Mm. but which will have profit at the end of the day. They may take care of the workers. They may take care of their uh, their working environment. They may make special uh, a special place for women, and uh, and the rest of it. But you know, to trans transcend to being a business that is a partnership that has that degree of uh, transparency, which is creating opportunities for growth, which is ensuring that fair wages are paid, and uh, you know, which, which has respect at the, at, you know, at, uh, at the center of it, if you mm. ask me, and that's the difference. So I don't want to just talk about business as just one kind of business and knock it out. But uh, it is true. I mean, with with fair trade, what we have achieved, and it's been a long journey, Betsy. Mm. Like you said, I started in 1978 when it was all happening. And in this journey, you've been through many ups and downs, and it continues. But what is important is mutuality and partnership. And we talk about producers and, uh, you know, garment workers, textile workers, farmers, 
craftspeople, artisans, but they're not the only ones who are getting enriched. It's people like you and me who are working with them. People like you and me who are making a difference. You know, when we are looking at these, uh, these the, the the environment which we are, uh, which we are working to to create an ecosystem which we are working to create, mm. which is sustainable, which puts uh, you know concern for people or or fair to treat people fairly. And uh, and for the environment, I mean, you care for this because at the end of the day, that's what is going to address the most pressing issues of our times. Mm, you make a good point about this all being an ecosystem because that's definitely how I think of the world. I think of systems as ecosystems. I think of people as ecosystems of influence. But I wonder if most people listening get that. Do you think of, and I'm addressing those of you listening, do you sort of see everything as an ecosystem? When you buy a shirt, you exist within an ecosystem because somebody made that shirt and somebody grew or produced the things that made the cloth for that shirt and somebody cut it and somebody shipped it. And there's this ecosystem where it's like, a bee pollinates a flower, which turns into something else. And thinking of people as part of an ecosystem really starts to change the way you see objects and things you buy, doesn't it? So this thinking that you do about people as an ecosystem is is really interesting and definitely causes some discomfort, doesn't it? It is cause for discomfort. And it's it's question of, you know, what you're looking for. Are you going to be in this state of you get onto this production and consumption cycle? I remember the time you'd buy one uh, refrigerator; it would last you ten years or fifteen years or twenty years, you know. And now it seems like you're replacing everything and dumping. You're replacing and dumping. You know, you're upgrading, and mm. this whole myth that has been sold. To people, you know, so till there is discomfort, and I think we have to be part of that. We have to. Uh, one of our uh, tasks is to create that discomfort. Who made your clothes? Yeah. And uh, you know, can you, if there's such a long supply chain, where you know manufacturers will go around the world looking for the most vulnerable workers, where their rights need not be protected by the state or by by the owners, mm. you know, who, who subcontract. So what happens, and in a long supply chain, even if the manufacturer, I mean, the owners of the business or people who are managing the business, even if they're well-intended, they never get to know what's happening at the ground. Till somebody you know, blows the lid, lid off. Your point about manufacturers proactively looking for places that are low on worker protection, things like unionization, basically manufacturers look for places where they can exploit people in peace is what you're saying. And supply chains are notoriously opaque. So even the companies who are trying to do a good job at tracing their supply chains often don't know their entire supply chain because things are outsourced to subcontractors or uh, they haven't necessarily inspected the, the production facilities themselves. And there is a lot of murky things going on in the supply chains that you could call modern slavery, frankly. It's 
it's and that's part of what we wear that's part of what we eat that's part of what we buy every day so what we just call consumption or production or shopping is all exploitative unless it has a label that's considered an ethical label you're probably participating in exploitation of a human being somewhere along that supply chain and that's all of us I would say that, you know, needs are created. Needs are created. You have an iPhone. It will slow down after a while. It will slow down because that's how they can send you, uh, sell you the next model. So, you know, it is the whole approach to things. It doesn't matter if all this is dumped or even, you know, you have from two seasons in fashion, we went to four seasons and now there are capsule collections. So end of the season, what do you do? You sell and make people buy at discounts or it's dumped. So, you know, the, 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 what it causes, the damage it causes to the environment when we, we dump automobiles, we dump refrigerators, we dump ex computers, we dump, dump, dump. And that is somehow that quality has been celebrated, you know, that you can do that. Somehow mm. that uh, is something that is uh, is applauded. I mean, you mm. get your status and that's, of course, is an aside. But, but we call it I upgrading, don't we? Like upgrading. upgrading is it's a great thing. It's something to get excited about. You camp out outside a store to upgrade your iPhone if you're really into it. Yeah, so rather than dumping and creating waste, we, we think of it as upgrading. That, that I think is worrying. And I, I think the good news is that you are getting people, however small that community might be, but it is there and it's growing, especially the younger people. It's growing. And my particular take on the COVID crisis you know, and all the impact it's had on travel, on us visiting malls and going out to eat, etc. I think in one way it has, the one advantage or one positive I can draw out of this is that people are possibly thinking about how little they need. Mm. Actually, how little we, because so many people have come back to me. It's anecdotal. I don't think we've done any study on it. There's nothing but, you know, how your behavior is altered by this. If you talk about discomfort, how much more, uncomfortable can it get <laughs> a lot but let's hope it doesn't. yeah yeah but but you see that is it from it people have have i find people have drawn on their uh, you know on their inventiveness on their improvisation skills and mm. uh, you know someone becomes a cook someone does something 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 but anyhow my point here is that um, you know Want and greed are created. And it's thoughtless. It's, it's thoughtless because the minute you know how things are produced, the minute you know how it all works, the impact that you're sustaining or your, your purchase is sustaining a system that treats workers badly, that doesn't protect their basic human rights, that doesn't give them a social economic uh, stability. So people will get more conscious if they think, if they're uncomfortable. And it's, you know, it's our task to do that. Yeah, those of us who are professional discomforters. Yeah. 
Oh, some of us do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it is it is really I, I feel that people will listen if they can pause to listen. And I think with climate change, people have climate crisis, really. There are many more people engaging in it. Mm. You know, they want to participate in, in their way. They want to participate in to lessening the impact, negative mm. impact, mm. mitigating it to some extent, if they can. I think people are concerned about it. This, again, like I said, this is some climate change. Climate crisis is one thing that you have. You have consumers pausing and thinking about it. If it wasn't so, H&M won't ask you to drop your their clothes, mm-hmm. you know, your used clothes, and you can buy a new garment because they know uh, customers out there will buy into that. I mean, we can call it greenwashing or whatever, but um, it is it is a reality that, uh, you know, the noise has been made and which, however superficially, is also making big brands pause and think about it. Is that just lip service? You know, is it actually having the intended impact or is it causing other unintended negative impacts? I have my own opinion on this. So I'm, I'm interested in hearing what you yeah, think. Of- I know. I think it does. I think my point here was only that there is discomfort, mm-hmm. which makes a person walk into H&M with an old garment because they feel they're doing their bit. It's not enough. It could be just lip service, as you say. It just makes people feel good like it does if you give a hundred dollars to some to your favorite charity. Not that yeah. it doesn't count, but I think people, at least um, in their buying choices, they could be far more, uh, they have far more power. Mm-hmm. They have far more power to influence change. It's a very graceful I- way of navigating that because obviously, you know, you're in a position where you don't want to, criticize too much, but I'm going to because I know that one in six pieces of clothing in a landfill in the UK is an H&M piece of clothing, or at least was the most recent research I saw, and that they've had such uptake of their take clothes back to their shops to recycle them scheme, they honestly don't know what to do with all of those used clothes. And so they do things like dump them on African markets that don't want them or they end up shredding them for mattress filling. So it's one of those things that like, and this is something I, I want to let listeners be uncomfortable with, actually, that just because you take back a piece of clothing doesn't mean you can just buy another one. It still is going to have an unintended negative impact. And you still need to read the label in that piece of clothing and see who made it and where and consider if they were paid fairly and the impact that production had on the environment. So I'm not letting people off the hook. I'm not letting H&M off the hook because not I still question their entire business model. Uh, of course, Betsy. Yeah. Absolutely. My point, as I said earlier, was only to say there are conscious, even if they are doing this little token act, there are people who can be sensitized much more. They can realize the power we have within ourselves to make a change through yes. our buying choices. Yeah. And that's huge. That's and it's huge. a big, it's a big step that it's become so mainstream that high street shops like HM have exactly. felt the need 
to deliver that to people because people are stressed about, oh my gosh, this has an impact. Yeah. And I, I agree. I think we're both optimistic activists here. But what's the next step people need to take of getting un- uncomfortable and then realizing just taking your used clothes back to a shop or or donating them is still not enough? So where do they go from there? Where do people go from there? How do we give them agency in having a more positive impact on the world as, well, we're mostly talking to Western consumers. Most of my listeners are in the States, the UK and Spain. So we have we have some money to spend on things. What do we need people to know now? What do they need to do next? It's, it's a question of advocacy. It's a question of how we're going to reach people. What is our message? How are we going to deliver it? How effective is our communication? Mm. I think it comes down to that. See, with and my uh, point about H&M and the big brands is that they do it so effectively. I don't know how much they spend on it, but they do it so. It's it's what keeps the wheels of the business running. Mm -hmm. Because you're capturing people's minds. You know, you, you have them under control. Yeah. It is. Yeah. You mesmerize people. If you, I, I use that term, you mess with, because people often are buying thoughtlessly. You've seen one, okay, this is the latest, I must get it. You create uh, that want, you create that need, you create that greed. So uh, I, I am not ambivalent of how business uh, behaves. And the fact that it is about profit at any cost. If your goal is that, then you're measured, your success is measured by the amount you can give your shareholders. So your value of your business grows. And the ground of that is exploitation, not only exploitation of workers, exploitation of consumers. And to keep it all going, like I said this before, and, you know, people would want to feel good about themselves and if they feel good about themselves it's not going to be always to go to a fair trade shop or to go to an ethical trade shop or where people talk about sustainable fashion to go there and buy that piece of clothing but Mm. then who's going to influence that change and I'd still say I'm optimistic because I think people are getting conscious People are. Otherwise, fair trade would not be growing. Otherwise, there wouldn't be so much, uh, uh, you know, people would not be responding to uh, eco, to the label eco, to the label sustainable, to the label ethical. Now, all these labels are limited in their scope. Fair trade is comprehensive, but it's Mm. a start. People are making yes. those choices. And what you talk about, you talk about landfills. I talk about the, you know, even the bigger uh, tragedy of, uh, of machinery being dumped. Mm. I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, just the consumption patterns. So, yeah. And still people feel uncomfortable and it's our job to make them feel uncomfortable in a good way. <laughs> 
That's well. That's why we're having this chat today, Rupa. We're cut from the same cloth with professional discomforters. But you use an interesting word about H and M and other brands. They're so brilliant in their communications. Like I know people who are brand marketing people, and they are so good at mesmerizing people. That was a great word because if you can mesmerize people, you've hypnotized them, and then. They're, they're making unconscious choices about what makes them feel good. But what you've also pointed out is we're all kind of locked into a system that from the ground up is built on exploitation. And so fair trade is kind of an alternate system that also sits within what you could say is it's a consumption model. You still need people to buy these products. So how do we, how do we talk? to people about buying less and consuming more ethically when we're still telling them to consume because that could seem a very inconsistent message for people. Also, people have needs. It's not that people will not buy, but instead of buying 10 clothes, you buy one really uh, good garment, which is handmade, which is hand-printed, which is embroidered, or which is special, Mm. or that silk scarf which is handwoven. So it's a question of, because it's not as if buying is going to stop, but then that piece of garment you're going to keep because I think there is an element of timelessness mm. to some products you buy and you enjoy them. And it it is uh, it has a cultural uh, context and uh, you will not buy, use and dump. Mm. You know, so I think it is that, it is that because it's a question of uh, people won't stop eating, but they'll eat organic. That's the choice you make. So we will beautify our homes. We do want lovely place. I mean, a lovely home. We want to textile, home textiles. And, uh, but you know where that's going. And then it's, Mm. it's pure natural material or it's used natural dyes or safe dyes so you know their whole uh, thing which is kind of uh, which is a part of which which is a product story if you like mm. so you when you're buying a product you're buying a whole story and you know that and if it's it's like uh, you know when I buy something or when we are working I'm working in Sasha and I see over the years in how fair trade has impacted women's lives, mm. you know, savings, children are being educated. You know, it's aspirational. You're you're coming out of that vicious circle of just laboring and making two ends meet, and you know, say, and being fatalistic about. So you know that is broken. You step out of that. You've seen that. Mm. And the confidence. And it, it is about how they are negotiating their environment, the power. I talk about women, though, of course, in Sasha, we work also with men and artisans. And we've seen how they've, uh, you know, even, even entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs in the villages, etc., who set up a business and they've transformed lives. I use that word loosely, I hope not, but it's a, it's a, it's a well-used word. <laughs> but it does, in fact, uh, you know, may, make a positive change, a positive impact in people's lives. So it is how should we be doing our business? At the end of the day, 
it can be profit for purpose. It can mm-hmm. be. I mean, per se, there's nothing wrong with profit, but profit has to be shared. Yeah. And, and yeah. it's the idea also that how can we all be well if someone somewhere is unwell? If if my prosperity comes at the cost of somebody else's ability to educate their children or eat properly day to day, because that is genuinely the impact. But yeah, I agree with you. There's nothing wrong with making a profit. We're not anti-business in any way, just to be clear on that. It's just we're anti-exploitation and systems that focus simply on shareholder value and profit at any cost, as you've said. We've definitely gone into the discomfort here. But let's talk about the reasons that keep both of us so enthusiastic about fair trade, because you see it transform lives and communities and livelihoods and and then have a generational impact because children can go to school rather than having to work or be at home. And, and talk about the impact that you've seen that have on women, communities, generations, new businesses being born because people are able to to create them yes yes and uh, i think that is one of the things that just uh, keeps me going and also it is that i love i love crafts i love artisans handmade i love natural i love organic all that's good for us and all that is beautiful but more importantly i think what keeps me going is uh, the value I give people, the creators. I'm just creating an environment that brings out the best, which enables people. We give give producers their due, and we create mm. an envi- I mean, an environment, enabling environment, in which they will grow, because it's their right, and they deserve it. You know, because of uh, a system that keeps them a certain way suppressed is is not appropriate it's it's wrong it's wrong and i think that it will explode mm. at some point because uh, to me it seems obvious and that's why i worked so many years and we'll continue to work here to me it seems obvious i think the real work is um, in, in influencing change in people's, uh, in, in consumers. And I think I also believe, like I believe in the power of producers. I also believe in the power of consumers. Mm-hmm. And that power is what needs to be exercised. That power needs to, because if that power is exercised and they will not buy from each and every, they will say no unless we know where this is going, unless we are clear about your business practices, unless we know what is the compliance uh, that uh, that you demand, then then that's it. Yeah. So that's why I'm passionate about it because you see that we can as fair traders, Betsy. We can influence change and we can and fair trade enterprises can demonstrate that, uh, you know, they are the models, they are the business models that more and more businesses should be emulating. 
bring those values into your business. I totally so, agree. Yeah. Well, and I've run a lot of big national advocacy campaigns that prove that actually individuals have an impact collectively. And a lot of people start by just simply believing that they can. And those who think that they can't just have an impact as individuals need to just take a blind leap and do things a bit differently and watch how the collective actually has impact. I remember when I, I started running the Fair Trade Forum in Scotland in 2007, quite a while ago now. And I remember it was really controversial when we started to talk to Tesco because Tesco is this big retailer in the UK and they have a policy of if 30 people ask for a certain item in one of their stores, they carry it. And so we started a postcard campaign, but a lot of very staunch, committed, wonderful fair trade activists were dead opposed to working with a mainstream retailer like Tesco. But Tesco sells the most of everything in the UK. So my point was, well, if we really truly want to impact the lives of producers in the developing world, like we say we want to, we actually need to kind of hijack the systems that sell the most stuff, but make sure they're selling stuff that we agree with. And so we did change things. We got more shops stocking fair trade products. We got people buying more fair trade products. And that's a big start. And that's collective action within 18 months of starting that campaign in Scotland, 25% of the people in Scotland had heard of or participated in this national fair trade campaign. And that was with a staff of two <laughs> running a campaign. So it just goes to show you that being smart, making people productively uncomfortable, and then giving them something inspiring to do that makes them feel good and fulfills one of their needs, really, it takes a lot of boxes. They feel good and they get something they want because Fair trade chocolate is delicious. Fair trade clothing is actually beautiful now. The products are beautiful. So it's not it's not as hard an ask as it was probably in like 1978. It isn't. It isn't. It isn't because I think that, like I said before, there's a growing uh, community of uh, consumers who are opting for more thoughtful uh, purchases, you know, because they do think about, and I agree with you that it is individuals and collectively working to bring that change. And uh, I think with WFTO, that's a collective voice, which is a strong voice. Mm. We have a, you know, we have an agenda to bring about not only uh, in the con uh, consumer behavior, not only uh, welcoming women, I mean, consumers to, or uh, influencing consumer to buy fair trade, but also to demonstrate the fair trade model that, okay, this is a good way of doing business. And why shouldn't every business be modeled on some values, fair trade values? Yeah. Mm. So I guess to those who are listening, who don't know what the fair trade model is, can you explain it in a nutshell? Well, I think it's values which uh, inform fair trade is, I've already said that, it's basically mutuality and partnership. So there are, of course, producers, farmers, artisans, crafts, visual garment, textile workers, and the intent is to give them agency, to look, see them as very important in that supply chain. So you have that and uh, the values are that you ensure that people are paid fairly, there's transparency and accountability. So 
anybody can ask any question and you know they get that they they are entitled to more information it is about gender equity about discrimination no discrimination no child labor and i think this one is very important that uh, respect for indigenous skills and knowledge that's a very important value and um, and then of course for the environment and freedom of association etc you talked about modern slavery so it's basically creating opportunities for disadvantaged uh, producers creating those opportunities and for uh, you know also giving respect the mutuality and um, and enabling enabling uh, uh, artisans and uh, like i said i think uh, and i would emphasize this point that it's not only about the producers it's also about the consumers so you know making consumers also aware of the choices which they should be making mm. also it's, for themselves also for themselves it's not just yeah. for the producers it's for themselves as well that how much can you consume what is what impact is your consumption going to have on the environment if you're going to buy 50 clothes and dump them then and with big brands if they're going to dump landfill is what you're facing you know mm. so um is a reality that we all have to cope with mm. and uh, and then looking at uh, that part of it so and i think another thing it's mission led and it is concern for people and planet first before profit and if it's profit is profit for purpose because the profit then is reinvested i'd say that the values which inform the business covers so many aspect of uh, you know a producer's life a consumer's life as well as the environment Yeah. Well, and it's also you going back to that early word of ecosystem that you talk about. It's recognizing connection. On on this podcast, lots of things come back to connection with other humans. And fair trade links those stories between consumers and producers of recognizing we're connected in this ecosystem and that that's stressful when you first realize it and don't know what to do about it, but as you start to make decisions based on Well, fashion revolution and if people listening don't know fashion revolution, it's a really beautiful global movement and they have fashion revolution week every every year, usually coinciding with fashion week in London or Paris or both. And they they always ask who made my clothes and they have beautiful campaigns of people who made clothes holding up signs saying I made your clothes. So it really does connect, you know, who made your jewelry, who made your shoes, who made your clothes. And it's a really good way to just get that mental picture because When people know the stories, they're never the same. And and when I ran the Scottish Fair Trade Forum, I would bring over producers every year and take them on tour, like a mad Fair Trade Fortnight tour every February, where we'd do like three meetings a day with universities and local councillors and schools and and they would talk about the impact that fair trade had, had on their communities of being able to not only be paid fairly but have this little fair trade premium that they're also paid to reinvest in what they wanted to invest it in through an elected local committee that had to have a certain number of women on it and they would talk about how that really did have an impact and people just never forgot those stories and once you know those stories you can never act the same again so it's that transformational power of of storytelling that creates connection actually and like you've been saying it's our responsibility to mesmerize people with those to tell those stories because 
everyone can have agency. Anyone listening to this today can start to read the labels on your clothes, see where they're made, consider what the labor laws are like there, um, look for more ethical brands to shop from, and then consider, do you really need things? What's truly beautiful in your life? What's truly beautiful in your home? Something that you'll use once and throw away or something that you'll treasure or something that you bought from your your neighbor or inherited from your grandmother. It's also just thinking about what's truly beautiful. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more on that because every purchase can has a story. I mean, you buy a beautiful ceramic cup, even that will have a story. It's like a gift. It's like a gift. But yeah. I like that word connections. Well, you walk into a fair trade shop and you ask, the stories behind the product, you create an experience and you bring it home. So there is, uh, I think uh, that there is so much that uh, enriches people. I mean, it's so enriching. Even if I say so myself, I mean, the fair trade, the fair trade journey and, and also the ecosystem we've created. Mm-hmm. over the years you're talking about fashion revolution or WFT is running that campaign all of us are participating in it. most of the social enterprises fair trade social enterprises who are member they're past, they are participating and doing all sorts of campaigns in their local communities so and that will have a multiplier effect because it's not something that's only happening where it started it's happening all over the world. So what keeps you uncomfortable? Do you have a discomfort practice? I do uh, meditate and I do, I'm following, uh, uh, I'm following Buddhism. It's a philosophy what I'm following. And that's always talking about challenges and overcoming challenges. And the premise is peace and happiness for yourself and for everyone. So that is what keeps me going. Person Rufo is what we call it. And that keeps me going. But yeah, and uh, it's, it's, it is very gratifying. It makes me uncomfortable. Like currently, I think as we particularly uh, the impact of uh, production processes even in, in the fair trade, there are very few. I mean, it has very low carbon print, uh, footprint. But uh, what I would like to see is more solar energy being used, like to see more effluent plants. I would like to see more uh, where we are ca- uh, car- I mean, car- caring a little more about wastage and about recycling wastage. Because mm. that's an area which we are uncomfortable about now. So, and then tomorrow there might be something else that we need to do. So there's, it's not a perfect world, Betsy. It's not a perfect (laughs) world. And even the fair trade world, I think we have a lot to do, but let's say we have a good uh, head start. There's a time and a place for comfort, but it's just a little moment to then get ready for the next discomfort. You know, sort of live an 80-20 life where you spend 80% of your time being uncomfortable, whether on purpose or just because that's how life works. 20% of time really focusing on your well-being and nurturing yourself. (laughs) I'm beginning to come to this conclusion. People seek comfort all the time. We're wired to, but actually most of life is uncomfortable and that's okay, isn't it? It keeps us striving. That's understanding life, Betsy. 
now I'll get a little philosophical because what's life without challenges? And challenges mean discomfort and overcoming challenges. It's so gratifying whenever the problem comes to you and you can make find a good solution and then you have to work for it. I mean, you can't just have it uh, fall on your lap, the more demanding you are. And if we are demanding and we want change and uh, we want to see the change, we want to be agents of change. And if you want to be catalytic, you don't maintain status quo. You don't say, okay, we've achieved so much, so it's great. At least we are doing this. It's not a moment where you say, at least we are doing this. And then you are self-satisfied. You say, but there's so much more to be done. Oh, Rupa, people like us will never retire, I think. (laughs) We'll always be seeing the next hit of discomfort because comes after the discomfort is always pretty incredible. It's it's life altering and sometimes it's world changing when it comes to things like fairer trade, impact on real people, changing people's attitudes and awareness. It's it's exciting discomfort, isn't it? It is, it is. You can keep a system going, but then who are we? Uh, what is, does it stop at this point that you're taking care of producers? But then you go beyond that to say, you know, you have to get the consumers also more conscious of what is good for them. What can be more enriching? What can be more uh, satisfying, gratifying? And, uh, and then again, whether we can influence business whether business can look at the fair trade business model other businesses and say okay this is this is something we would like to emulate in our working so there is yeah there's always more to be done there is always and thank god for that and thank god for that (laughs) yeah well i'm going to ask you one final question what one thing would you like people to feel maybe empowered by or uncomfortable about to be more thoughtful in your actions, to demand more information, to move out to know and learn more, and participate. Participate in making the change. Participate in in uh, in impacting. That's beautiful. Because it is, it's participate. But with participate, there's an implication that you're not alone. So yeah, let's leave people with that. You're not alone. There are a lot of people striving to be conscious, striving to participate. So just think a little differently today. Try to do something a little differently and keep doing those little things and they add up. Thank you so much, Rupa, for your time. It was such a pleasure to speak to you. You're kind of one of my heroes. Just thought I'd say that. But I I am deeply grateful for your time. It was beautiful to chat to you. Thank you. Thank you to my team who helped me produce this podcast, to my brilliant editor, Dimitar Tsvedkov, to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, and to Luis Amaro for the original artwork. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help me reach new listeners by leaving me a five-star and written review on Apple Podcasts, following me on Spotify, or anywhere else you love to listen to podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram at TheBetsyReed. That's B-E-T-S-Y-R-E-E-D. If you're interested in bonus episodes and guided meditations I record regularly, head over to patreon.com and become a supporter. 
for the price of a coffee each month, you get access to a community. So there's really only one thing left to say. Thank you for spending time with me. Stay uncomfortable.